All right, we're in chapter 4 of Hosea, and uh, we've seen this story of this relationship between Hosea and his wife Gomer, the wife that God told him to seek out and find. She, what was her trade? It was prostitution. He said, I want you to go find a prostitute. She can be a good-looking prostitute. But I want you to love her, and I want you to marry her, and he had the children with this prostitute. And then the story kind of ends. We really don't know what happened uh, to Hosea R. Gomer after this. I have a hunch or suspicion that Gomer went back to her trade. She went back to her harlotries. And at some point, Hosea got fed up with it, and he divorced her. And I think that's kind of the, where we, we're picking up in, in God's relationship with Israel at this point. I mean, it looks like God is about to divorce Israel, the northern kingdom. He's not going to divorce the southern kingdom as of yet. That's going to happen 100 or so years later. But he's about to file this divorce with the northern kingdom. And I hesitate to call it a divorce because we know from elsewhere in Hosea that God's going to promise the northern kingdom that they're going to be restored in, after many days. We saw that last week, and many days means many days. When the Lord says many days, if the Lord tells you something's going to happen in your life many days from now, that's many, many days from now. And they've been in the situation, the state of uh, almost captivity. They've been scattered abroad ever since... Uh, 721 B.C. when Sennacherib came down and defeated the northern kingdom and, and took them off as slaves. And so the situation still hasn't changed. But instead of maybe calling this a divorce, I think God is going to file for a separation with the nation of the, uh, the, with the northern nation of Israel. It's going to be a long separation, but at one point he's going to remarry Israel. We saw that in the First chapter, he's going to remarry Israel, and the northern and the southern king will be united, and they'll go into the millennial kingdom at that point. Now, so let's listen to God's charges. And as we listen to this, let me know if it sounds sort of familiar to you, uh, to the situation maybe we're in in the United States of America today. Look at verse number one. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint. They have no restraint. With bloodshed upon bloodshed. I mean, the land is full of violence. So when you look at the charges that he makes against the nation of Israel, basically you can base those charges on what? What are they violating? If you look at those charges, they're violating the Ten Commandments. They're violating the, the commandments that God gave them, and God gave them those commandments in love. For them to operate as a godly society, they were going to have to keep those commandments. Now, uh, if you remember in Deuteronomy, God told them through Moses that if they would keep the commandments, they would be blessed. If they didn't keep the commandments, they will be cursed. And 
way back in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses after actually prophesied that one day Israel, the northern kingdom, would go into captivity. And so God knew when he was setting them up and taking them into the, into the promised land that one day all of this was going to happen. Because he understood the human nature. The human nature is to rebel against God. And if the parents neglected their children, then there would be a generation that would come up that would not know God. And God would not know them. That's where you get that low of me and low ruhamah. They do not understand the God, God's mercy and they, therefore they're not God's people. And so look at the situation there. There's no mercy. Uh, there's no truth or mercy. In other words, there are no absolutes. They had no absolutes. The people were living se- selfish lives. And if you're s- selfish, do you show much mercy? No. You know, it's an unselfish person that shows mercy. They weren't showing any mercy because they were very selfish people. And, and uh, they, uh, they lied to one another. There was no integrity in the land. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. And no one knew the Lord. They didn't know the truth. They didn't have knowledge of the Lord. And so they didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And, and the next step when you're doing that is you start worshiping idols, which they, we remember the first commandment, and you start taking the Lord's name in vain. They started swearing by the Lord. And so uh, without the law, there was no restraint. They became thieves and adulterers. Uh, and when he talks about adulterers, he's talking about adultery within the marriage relationship. They became murderers. And, and the societal... Violence increased exponentially to a point where God says, I've had enough. You're about to be judged. You remember when God judged the earth in the days of Noah? You remember that judgment? Remember what he said? I mean, that was an evil. All the people had evil on their mind all the time. We're told that. But he also, he says something there that kind of gives you an indicator of when a society is about to collapse. God said this when he judged the people in Noah's day. He said, the end of all flesh has come for the earth is filled with violence. Therefore, I will destroy them from the earth. So when a society begins to destroy itself with violence, they become like a rabid dog. And so in God's mercy, he ended all of the violence that was going on in the land. And I got to say, man, I've seen some things in the last couple of years that just are unbelievable. The violence that's rampant in the United States of America today. I mean, bloodshed upon bloodshed. I mean, you see kids being shot down in schools. You see policemen being shot down by snipers. I mean, this is in the United States of America. Bloodshed upon bloodshed and, and, and to a point where we're on the verge of anarchy and or collapse and or the judgment of God might very well be on the verge of the judgment of God. I don't think so, and I'll make that point a little bit later. I mean, we're on the verge of it, but I don't think God's going to judge us just yet. Look at verse number three. He says, therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. I mean, not only, I mean, not only are the people going to mourn, I mean, the whole creation is going to groan. It's going to be so bad that even the animals are going to be hurt by this judgment. And then he says in verse number four, now let no man contend or rebuke another for your people are like those who contend with the priest. I mean, here they were and these bad times were coming upon them and they didn't even realize they were coming upon them because they wouldn't listen to the priest. They wouldn't listen to the prophets. They wouldn't listen to the word of God. 
And so instead of listening to the priest, they contended with the priest. You know, it's kind of the way it is today. If somebody gets up in the pulpit and says, and I'm not saying this because God hadn't told me this, but if he says something like these floods that came to Lafayette are maybe part of the judgment of God on this city. Well, you know, I don't know that that's true. I'm not God. But I'll tell you what would happen if you said that in a society, you would be vilified. I mean, when 9-11 hit, there were pastors that were saying that's part of the judgment. God is pulling down the edge, and that's the part of the judgment of God on America. I personally believe it was the beginning of the judgment of God. And, but anybody that said that was, was uh, taken to task because nobody wanted to hear that. I mean, all the problems we have with floods and hurricanes and all of that, really, it's, what do we attribute it to? Global warming. I mean, I got to tell you something. You know, I, I, and I'm certainly for a clean environment, but carbon emissions don't change the temperature of the sun. And the temperature of the sun has changed in the last 20 years. And that has nothing to do with carbon emission. Who keeps his hand on the thermostat of the sun? God does. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that we're at a point of judgment yet, but I think God is trying to get America's attention. And, and, and uh, we're going to see more and more of these disasters as we come closer and closer to the end. He says, therefore, you shall stumble in the day. Verse number five. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. He's not talking about their literal individual mothers here. He's talking about their nation. I'm going to destroy your nation, your nation who has become your mother. The nation who you look to for health and wealth and prosperity. Does that sound a little bit familiar? The nation you're so proud of, I'm going to destroy that nation. You'll stumble in the day, not just in the night. I mean, you'll walk in, if you walk in darkness, I'll tell you what, you're going to not only stumble in the night, you're going to stumble in the day. And eventually those prophets that you're listening to that are false prophets that we've been talking about in 2 Peter, they're going to stumble with you. Because they know that you want to get more people in your church and tell people what they want to hear. You don't preach, you know, Hell and brimstone and judgment and things like that if you want to pack the pews. So, so uh, you know, you, you tickle people's ears. And so they're wells without water, but really they're lamps without light. The light is in this word. And if you don't teach this word, you don't have light. If you don't impart this word, then the people are walking in darkness. And that was what had happened in Israel in that day. They were walking in the daytime in darkness, in total spiritual darkness. And so he says, I'm going to destroy your mother. I'm going to destroy that nation that you're so proud of, that you look to for protection and comfort and economic prosperity. I'm going to destroy her. But really, in reality, look at verse number six. My people are already destroyed for lack of, why? For lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Now, God is omniscient. Does he forget anything? No. He's using an anthropomorphism right there where he's, he's putting human characteristics on God. It will be as if he forgets your children. In other words, you're... If, you're destroying yourself for lack of knowledge, lack of 
knowledge of the word of God. And, and because you have no knowledge of the word of God, you have no knowledge of me. You have no relationship with me. And so no longer can you serve me. We're here on this earth for what purpose? To be priest unto God and priest unto other people. That's what we're here for. That's why God keeps us here after we're saved. And when no longer we can be used in that for those purposes, then we're of no use to God. And you know, probably the primary focus of our service should be in our home with our own children. And if you're, you like knowledge, your children are going to like knowledge. And they're not going to know God. And God's going to... It, for all practical purposes, forget them. He doesn't forget them. He knows every single person, every single hair on every head on this earth. But as far as having a relationship with him, they're not going to have a relationship with him. It'll be as if they're forgotten children. You know, I tell people all the time when they tell me, you know, I don't need that religion. I don't need God. I don't, you know, if I go to hell, so what? You know, I mean, I wish they would, God would just give them one night in hell. They'd change that tune real quick. But I say to them when they say something like that to me, what about your children? You tell me, you know, if you like knowledge, the knowledge of this word, and you like a relationship with the Lord, your children are going to like a relationship with the Lord, and they're going to end up in hell too? You, I mean, are you willing to let your children go to hell? You know what? Most people are. Most people don't care enough about their children to seek out. If for any other reason you would seek out a relationship with the Lord to save your children, to make sure they're saved and they spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. Then he says in verse number seven, he says, the more they increase, the more I bless them, the more they sinned against me. The more increase I gave them, the more they sinned against me. And I will change their glory unto shame. In other words, they, they think everything's great right now. Under Jeroboam II, which is who was the king, he was the king during this time, they were doing really well. They were prospering economically. They had a great military. Uh, they felt invincible. And uh, yet the more I bless them, the Lord says, the more they sin. <laughs> Sound familiar? And... I'm going to change their glory to shame. They're so proud of their mother nation, but I'm going to change that glory unto shame. In verse number eight, they eat up the sin of my people. Let me, let me read, let me translate that a little bit differently. They eat up the sin, my people, the of I would leave out there. They set their heart on iniquity. In other words, they eat up sin like a child eats up candy. I mean, their heart is continually set on sin. They brag about their sin. You know, we live in a society today where, where it's all, you're not cool if you don't sin. You know, you, you know the coolest actors are the greatest sinners. And, and we promote sin in our movies and our entertainment and our, and our, and our writing and our schools. And, and, and uh, our hearts are set upon iniquity. And in verse number nine, he says, and it shall be like people, like priests. In other words, eventually, hey, all the prophets are gone. God, and we're going to see him tell Hosea, don't say anything else here in a minute. But he says, and it shall be like people, like priests. They'll get priests, uh, uh, amass for themselves priests and 
pastors that tickle their ears. And so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. And uh, what that reward he's talking about is not a pretty picture. Again, I, if you get a chance, I'm not going to get into it again tonight, but if you get a chance, go read about the, the, uh, the capture of the northern kingdom and what took place uh, when Sennacherib defeated that nation and, and uh, took them off to captivity. It was not a pretty sight, not a pretty sight at all. Then he says in verse number 10, for they shall eat, but they shall not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase spiritually. But they have ceased because they have ceased obeying the Lord. You know, I used to think that when I was prospering, God was pleased with me. When I wasn't prospering, God was displeased with me. I've learned that that's not true at all. You can be in a lot of trouble and God be very pleased with you. Uh, you can have all sorts of prosperity and God can be very displeased with you. And I'll tell you the way you can tell if you're not prospering spiritually. If God's not the one who's prospering, no matter what you accumulate or what you have, you find no spiritual contentment. I mean, you see people that have all sorts of things, all sorts of money. They have large bank accounts. They, they have health and wealth, and yet, they, and yet they don't have spiritual contentment. And then what do people do when they don't have spiritual contentment? They turn to all sorts of evil things. And they turn to all sorts of evil things and, and that enslave the heart. Look at verse number 11. Harlotry and wine and new wine enslave the heart. What do you mean enslave the heart? It puts you in a position where you can't hear from God. You can't know God. If your heart's given to wine, if your heart's given to drugs, if your heart's given to harlotry, don't tell me you know the Lord because you don't. You blinded yourself. You can't know the Lord and be drunk all the time. There's no way you can, can know the Lord. You can't be on drugs all the time and know the Lord. You have enslaved your heart. Then in verse number 12, he says, My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staffs informs them, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. You know what they do? They take their staffs, and they spin them, and then wherever their staff fell, that's the direction they would go. And they would pray to their gods and ask the God to show them direction. What's that remind you of? Kind of like a Ouija, you know, a Ouija board. And, and they were looking, they, they would, and then when they needed something, they would, they would gather food and wine and all sorts of offerings, and they would go lay it in front of their wooden, wooden idols, and they would ask for those idols to give them blessings. Those idols could not give them any blessings, could they? And, and uh, so the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. Against all Jehovah, all powerful Jehovah God. What a blessing. What a blessing it is to know the Lord. What a blessing it is to give our cares and needs to the Lord. To get direction from the Lord. I mean, God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He's omnipresent. He sees all things. He's omnipotent, that means he has all power to solve our problems. 
And you know what happens when he doesn't solve them the way we want them solved, or he doesn't give us the direction we want, we start seeking other things. And so they enslaved their hearts with wine, new wine, harlotry, and idols. And then in verse number 13, they offer sacrifices on mountaintops. He's talking about everything they do becomes pagan. I mean, even their weddings become pagan. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops. They burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebrates because their shade is good. Therefore, you daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I mean, even your weddings are pagan. I will not punish your daughters. In other words, I'm not going to blame it on the women when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit harlotry. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with with a ritual harlot. Therefore, the people do not understand the seriousness of what they're doing, the evil of what they're doing, and they will be trampled. In other words, I'm not going to hold the women responsible. Although they suffered too, I'm going to hold the men responsible. And in verse number 15, though, you're, though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, a Beth of Ann. That's where the temples were in the northern kingdom. So he's saying now to Judah, hey, though Israel is doing all of these terrible things, don't you follow suit. And remember what I said earlier, what happens when you begin to, to fall away from the Lord, you begin to swear by the Lord, you begin to take the names the Lord's name in vain. You worship your idols, but you don't worship the Lord. And nor swear an oath saying, as the Lord lives. And then in verse number 16, he says, for Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf, like a backsliding heifer, literally, is what he's saying there. You've ever had a cow or a donkey or any kind of domestic animal that you've tried to move that doesn't want to move you understand the metaphor that's being used here instead of coming towards you they back up you're trying to get them out of trouble and they're backing up you're trying to take them to the feed trough and they're backing up you're trying to get them to work and do the right thing and they're backing up and the more God wooed Israel the more they backslid the more they rebelled against the leadership of the Lord And now the Lord will let them forge like a lamb in open country. What's a lamb in in the open country doing? Getting fat. Put a lamb out there by itself and let it eat all the grass. That lamb's going to get really fat. But what's it getting fat for? It's getting fat for the slaughter. Because a lamb lamb out in the open country without a shepherd is prey to every wild beast, to the lion and to the, they had lions in those days, to the wolf, to the dog, whatever. A lamb can't defend itself. And here was Israel getting fat, all this prosperity, and yet all they were doing was fat, all they were doing was fattening themselves up for the judgment of God. And then he says something that I think is one of the most frightening passages in the Bible in verse number 17. He said, Ephraim is joined to idols. Well, this is all about marriage, right? 
Who was Ephraim married to now? To idols. Then he says, let them alone. Let them alone. There's a couple of interpretations for that. Some people would say that he was, that was still the Lord speaking to Judah. And he's saying to the tribe of Judah, don't you participate in their idolatries. Leave them alone. Stay away from them. And the basis of that interpretation is that, that uh, Israel is going to be redeemed one day. And so they're really not left alone. God never left them alone. Again, these are anthropomorphisms here. But I, I'm of the camp, and I disagree with my favorite expositors in being in this camp because G. Campbell Morgan's in that first camp, and he's like my favorite. I think it may be the first time I ever disagreed with him. But I'm of the camp, I believe he was speaking to Hosea. I always believe he was speaking to Hosea, just like remember when God spoke to Jeremiah, and remember what he told Jeremiah? He said, therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry of prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. They've crossed the line and there's no return. And I have no doubt here that Israel had crossed the line and there was no return. No return. Now they're going to be saved. In the end, Paul tells us all of Israel will be saved. We're told in chapter 1 that the northern kingdom will be restored and be united with the southern kingdom. So they will be saved. But at this point in time, they had reached a point as a nation, where they weren't going to hear the word of God. They weren't going to listen to the prophecies of God. And God won't strive with people forever. There comes a time when a nation or person becomes so callous and so cold. I don't know when that time is. Only God knows. That God might say, leave them alone. Leave that person alone. There's no hope for that person. God knows. You know, God knows every person in this room that there's hope for. And every person in this room there's not hope for. Because he knows the future. He knew the future of Israel. He knew that no matter what he said to them, they were going to go down this wicked path and they were going to rebel against God until he sent them off into captivity. He knew that. And he knows in your case, in my case, you know, what, how we're going to live out the rest of our lives. He knows that already. That's why even for a believer, there's a sin unto death. If God thinks, you know, you can't serve him and there's nothing else for you to do and you're going to just cause more trouble and you're going to cause good, they, he might take you out of here. He might take you out of here just because he loves your face. Because you're so pretty, he wants to see you in heaven. I don't mean, he has all sorts of reasons for taking us out of here. Takes, you know, he takes some pretty good people out pretty early. I've seen some good people go out early and I've seen some wicked people. That's what we looked in Ecclesiastes. I've seen some wicked people stay around a long, long time. You wonder when God's going to take them out of here. Their drink is rebellion, verse number 18. They commit harlotry continually. All they do is seek after idols. Anything but God. Anything but God. Give me anything but God. Friends, there are a lot of people in the church that fit that mold right there. I'll seek after all sorts of stuff in this world. I'll call myself a Christian. I'll come to church on Sunday. But you know what? I got all these idols and I really don't want God to interfere with my adulterous life. That's a dangerous place to be. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. 
Her rulers dearly love dishonor. Wow. Is that not apropos? Her rulers dearly love dishonor. Look, I, I'm a firm believer, and I base that upon studying the nation of Israel and the history of Israel, that God gives us the leaders that we deserve and we want. He gives them to us. And you and I can sit around maybe as a remnant and beg God, please, in your mercy. That's what Daniel prayed, Lord, not because we deserve it, but in your mercy, give us some righteous people to lead. And we can pray that. But more than likely in the end, we're going to get somebody of dishonor. They love dishonor. They don't love the Lord. The people don't love the Lord. The rulers aren't going to love the Lord. The people want to stray from the Lord. They're going to have rulers and priests and pastors that stray from the Lord. And here's what's happened. You reap a wind. You sow a whirlwind. What you sow is what you reap. The wind has wrapped her up Israel the wind of evil and harlotry has wrapped her up in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices to idols why will they be ashamed because of their sacrifices to idols because when Sennacherib came down there and he put fish hooks in their nose I'm talking about hooks like this and chained them all together and took them off into various lands in the Middle East. You better believe they cried after their idols for a while. But they realized real quick that their idols weren't helping them. That all that prosperity that they had in Israel wasn't because they worshipped those idols. It was because of the grace of Jehovah God. And I believe at some point, rather soon in that process, they begin to cry out to the Lord. But, you know, the Lord knew the nation of Israel pretty well, didn't he? Study the book of Judges. When every man did what was right in his own eyes, what happened over and over and over and over and over again? God would save the nation with a judge. They would go right back into their wickedness. Save them again, they'd go right back into their wickedness. Save them again, they'd go right back into their wickedness. And so he says this time, Hey, they're wrapped up in the wind of their wickedness and they're going to be carried away. And I don't care how hard they cry out. I'm not going to bring them back into the land so they can do this all over again. They're toast and they'll be ashamed of their sacrifices. Great news, right? <laughs> and the really sad thing is, or the scary thing is, this sounds eerily familiar to what's going on in the United States of America today. There's no knowledge of God in the land. People don't have a relationship with God. There's still a lot of churches, but people don't have a relationship with God. There are a lot of Bibles, but people don't read those Bibles. And there's all sorts of things in this world to drown out the voice of the Lord. I read today that the average American spends 10.9 
hours a day looking at social media. 10.9 hours a day. That's the average American. That social media, that includes TV, movies. Uh, it includes uh, your computer. Some of it's at work. Some of it's not at work. 10.9 hours a day. Now, if you sleep for eight hours, what's that leave you? Somebody calculate that. 11, <laughs> whatever. It doesn't leave you much time, does it? And if you spend any time with your family, what time does it leave you for the, to get to know the Lord, to, to meditate in, in the presence of the Lord, to pray and read your Bible? It doesn't give you any time. And, you know, the sad thing about this great country is people could care less about character and integrity. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And there is bloodshed upon Bloodshed. And you talk about a bunch of stubborn rebels. We are a bunch of stubborn rebels. And I got to ask the question is, has God said at some point in the, to the United States of America, uh, leave the USA alone? She has joined the idols. You want my take on it? I don't think he said that yet. I don't think he said that yet. If I was to compare our situation with Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, I would compare us to the southern kingdom. Southern kingdom was doing some really bad things at this time, too. But they had a remnant of godly people. And I'm reminded of when God came to Abraham and told him he was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, if there were 50 righteous people, would you, would you spare the city? And he said, yeah, if there were if there were 35, if there were 40, if there were 20, if there were 10. And God said, yeah, in every single case. And I believe as long as this remnant is still here in this country, God's not going to judge this country yet. That's why I believe so strongly in the rapture. Because when the church is taken out, you can say the USA has joined the idols. Let her alone. That's where we're heading. That time's coming. We're not there yet, thank goodness. God's still working. He's still going to get some people saved. We might see a great revival and, and see Franklin Graham as president of the United States in four years. Don't bank on it. But God is full of mercy and God can do great things. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, we just thank you for, for your word and the, just your heart, Lord. Lord, you, no doubt you spoke all of these words from a broken heart to people who you loved so much, gave so much to, like you've given to our great country. And yet they attribute all of those blessings, Lord, to other things, to themselves, to this nation, to idols. Lord, how tragic that is. Father, but you do have a remnant in this land, and you, you can work a revival. And Lord, that's what we pray for tonight. We pray for you to revive the United States of America. Begin here in Lafayette, Lord. Let us see revival here. Or maybe these floods and things we've had are, are the, the Valley of Acre, which is the door of hope, Lord. Maybe this pain and things we're suffering as a society here will open the door to revival. We just ask for that. We ask that these things aren't wasted. It's a good sign, Lord, that you're still disciplined in the United States of America, that you still love us enough to keep trying to get us saved. 
So use us, Lord, and bless us and, and uh, bless our ministry so we, we can do just that, that we can lead others to Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.